0: and see um, kind of questions people have about the topic and what gets stirred up for you talking about or listening about the topic of fear and how to work with it
1: (laughs) well I guess could you elaborate a little more on that meditation just taking on someone else's or like sadness of the world or another person or a little more detail
0: on that. So Tonglen practice is the whole practice. And, you know, one does it for very limited periods of time. So like a normal Vipassana meditation, you'd stay with the breath for like half an hour. With Tonglen, you do it for like 10 minutes at mm-hmm. the most. And then you stop and come back to the breath. And so the idea is, is, is that one starts with where you're at, okay? So you connect with a kind of a tenderness or an affection in your own heart. And then you can imagine something that's unpleasant, that you feel willing to open up to. So I remember, you know, when Pema Chodron was talking about this, she was working with a woman who, um, whose son was in a really, really bad state. And she was trying to get the mother to work with it with Tonglen. I can't remember the circumstances, but it was desperate. You know, really, I think he was strung out on drugs and in jail and suicidal or something. I mean, it was just really desperate. And she couldn't get anywhere near the magnitude of her son's suffering. It was just huge. But she could open to the grief of the football team that had lost. She could do that. Okay? So that was her, like, her foot in. That was her toe in she could she could open up to that and feel you know they had they had wanted to win and they lost and how that must have felt for them so she worked with what she could do and then very gently and very gradually she began to expand her capacity to things that were a little bit more difficult and a little bit more difficult until i think i think eventually over time she could open up to the circumstance that her son was having to navigate which was so big for her initially it was out of her depth completely so you really have to start with something that you feel you can open to and then you imagine what it would be like to have whatever it is and you breathe it in like the imagination is is that you breathe in some kind of a smoke into your lungs breathe it into your body but again you're not breathing it in to cause lung cancer you're breathing it in for it to dissolve the thing that keeps you from resting in all pervasive awareness unbroken all pervasive awareness from your complete awakened mind and then you let that be there and then you give back to the very thing that you are breathing in all of the stuff that you cherish what you love the most the things that's the most important to you so you breathe in what you don't want and you give away exactly what you want the most and it's very powerful
2: I always think to myself um, how amazing it is that I let things get a hold of me so much and it almost never turns out to be as bad as I thought it was going to maybe every once in a while, but I always assume it's going to be the worst. And I think just, you know, since I've been practicing, I've been able to watch that. I don't think I've obviously definitely not mastered it, but I, I can watch it now and see exactly what it is, you know, just for what it is, just here, you know, and not reality. And I think that's what meditation is helping me with. One of the many things it's helping me with is to find... The truth in that, you know, the truth in that um, is the future <laughs> and nothing, you know, there's no saying whether things are going to end up that way or not going to end up that way.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: I can influence it probably, I can have some influence over it, but my actions, truthfully, it's, you know, most things just happen the way they're going to happen.
0: But we can make something which is unpleasant horrendous. And we can also make something pleasant horrendous. You know. So, you know, how we're interacting with what's happening really has a huge impact on, on you know the overall system. Yeah. You know. I was I was at a group in Denver and You know, I've been telling people, listen, if you want me to do anything, you're going to have to let people know to come fragrance-free because you guys don't get it. (laughs) You know, what happens is really, it's not, you know, it's just really hard. Anyway, the person who organized the group had had a really, really difficult time, gave the notice out the day the group was happening and didn't say anything about fragrance-free. And so somebody came on with perfume and we were sitting in a space like this big with this like screaming perfume and it was like, whoop, you know. So, you know, we were there for what, an hour and a half or two hours and, you know, I didn't want to say anything because I, you know, I, I didn't want anybody to feel, I didn't want anyone to feel badly. You know, and what was I going to do? So we opened up the windows and I sat with it. And so I was just, you know, watching the escalation, de-escalation process internally as I was in this space with something that was not what I needed to be around, you know, and just, you know, trying to navigate it. And so I didn't add anything extra to it, you know, but it it did take 24 or 36 hours for it to come out of my system, you know. So... I'm learning that, you know, if people want me to do groups, I need to negotiate that if if we can't have it fragrance free, then I'm not going to (laughs) come. You know, if there can't be any way of letting people know that, then I can't, I can't, I can't do it because taking 24 hours to recover from a talk is too long, you know, it's just too long. So I'm learning. But it is nice to see that, well, okay, so that's what happened, but I didn't add anything extra to it, so I didn't have anything on top of it that I was dealing with, you know.
3: The group, when you there, uh, and I may not, it, it, but the double arrow, the arrow, <laughs> and that's what this reminds me of, and I can't, I don't know it well enough to relate it. Well, just sister could probably tell you more about it
2: than I could because I'm still... I have the general idea... But, but, he, that, that but go You ahead. know, the, the two go arrows. Yeah. And that is that you... Um, and I, don't, I can't tell you exactly where I heard it, but it's about um, the man that gets hit by two arrows. And really, he's just hit by one. <laughs> so he spends know, he suffers once because of the pain of the arrow going into his chest, and then he suffers a second time because he's wondering, who would have shot me? Why would somebody do this to me? You know, um, and then all the pain around that second arrow is is, uh, just added. It's just extra suffering that doesn't need to be there, other than just saying, oh, I got shot by an arrow. (laughs) I should probably pull the."
1: So it's like you get depressed, and you get depressed about being depressed. Yeah, Yeah. and you get depressed about being depressed about being depressed. Exactly, and just kind of spirals on.
0: So there's a, a way of referring to that in this in this kind of situation, which is that pain is inevitable, and suffering is optional. So obviously, you know, navigating all of this is uncomfortable. But whether I am suffering about it is how I'm relating to it and the way to relate to it to assure suffering is to fight that it's happening to hope that it, that it, it changes immediately or to think that it shouldn't be here that's to guarantee that I'm going to suffer <laughs> that's like tailor made arrow direct to suffering express train but when, you know, one recognizes this is what's happening, it's going to be here as long as it's going to be here, and that this is what I'm dealing with, you know, this is my practice now, then, then, okay, you know, I might feel sad or frustrated, but I'm not suffering in the same way that I would be if I was fighting it. And that, you know, the fight, you know, because, my goodness, you know, I'm a strong-willed person, and I have fought, things with every ounce of fur and fang that I can muster you know absolutely until I realize it goes nowhere you know some of these things you can't fight it's here you know get with the program
4: <laughs> You know,
0: I had chronic fatigue syndrome for many years and for a long period of time you know when I would have a relapse I would just get absolutely black depressed and then i would get absolutely furious and then i would get scared shitless you know so i'd go through three different kinds of things that i did and then i realized all of them was just another manifestation of resistance but this is what is you know it's another level of fight
1: i also heard ajin brahm talk about once about how when you're experiencing fear or a particular emotion that you don't want to deal with and sometimes if you try to deal with it in the body or other in the mind that also helps to relax the problem so like say you're angry and then so your neck tenses up and you grit your teeth or something and so you can't get over the anger so you just try to relax your jaw or your neck or the things that tighten up and or fear you know some same kind of concept but some <laughs>
0: very very important Very important, because some of these things are really compelling and very sticky. And yet, when we work at it from a body perspective, you know, the body doesn't have the capacity to live in the past or the the future. Mm -hmm. And the body doesn't make stories. You know, the body just is, you know. So when we work with it, with how we're actually feeling it physically, it's much simpler, it's much less complicated. Mm -hmm. It's a brilliant way of de-escalating the complexity and working with stuff, letting it ease out. And as I was saying, you know, some of this stuff is is, is physical in origin. You know, so if we're, we're clear about that, then that can help us with that piece as well.
4: When I was little, I was like seven, I actually got into Buddhism with my mom because I had a back problem and we used to go in the car and when we'd go over bumps, it would really hurt and make me cry. So I tense up my whole body, the whole car ride. And i just cry all tensed up, like nervous that something would hurt me. So my mom used to teach me about like, Buddhist practices and help me calm my body so that I wouldn't tense up all the time. And it was tremendous. It's was better than any chiropractor.
0: It's really important, learning.
1: One thing I appreciate about what you're talking about, especially in light of this was that, um, that the body, that the discernment that's needed to bring to it, too. You know, definitely, like, you know, working with Tantra definitely brings a lot of body practices she's been focusing on, and a lot of working with her, talking with her about practice. And, and just being more aware of the body is, can do a lot of wonders. I think about, like, little things, like, when I'm eating, sometimes I like get really tense, and I'll notice that my hands are just, like, not really this, but they're almost clenched. You know and I'll just like open them If I can become aware of that, that can like change the feeling of eating, something like that. But that the body has its own kind of schedule. So like when anxiety comes up, I can have anxiety issues too so They come up around different things. Sometimes if I don't eat early like, morning, I can feel myself be really anxious because I haven't eaten for a while. Or if I haven't eaten for a while. And so um, that uh, Working with the body sometimes is just like a discernment of realizing, well, it's going to do its own thing. It's not actually like changing a physical position because anxiety doesn't go away. It's just becoming more aware that the crazy thoughts I'm having at that moment <laughs> are not really coming from anywhere else. The stomach is grounded. Now,
0: there's this wonderful story. Um, it's a true story. There was somebody who was on a retreat, and, you know, you sit on a retreat for a- However long, and you sit for hours, and you know it's not uncommon that things hurt. You know, so one person had some pain in his knee, and and spent the whole hour meditating, designing a special wheelchair for meditators. You know, because he was convinced that the, his pain in the knee was going to lead to you know permanent injury. That he was going to have to be in a wheelchair forever, so he spent the rest of the meditation designing this wheelchair. And what was happening was, was there was an unpleasant sensation in his knee. That's what was happening, you know. So he didn't he didn't catch that, and so it it went into this thinking, and then the thinking was compelling, and it 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 it, it reinforced itself, and he stayed with this imagination of how to design a special wheelchair for meditators rather than just notice that he was thinking and come back to the sensation in his body and to be with the unpleasantness of it.
5: I have this constant anxiety um, about passing and gender identification because I'm trans, I'm transgender, I'm female to male transgender. And it's this constant anxiety that people aren't going to recognize me as male, that they're going to recognize me as female, like at school, and dance class, and all these different environments. And it's sort of something that I've become used to, and I'm always adjusting my shirts and pulling my pants down. And I'm just, like, constantly fiddling with myself, and I'm, I'm having such a hard time letting that go because it's such an integrated part of my identity. So I don't know,
0: like, how I can do that. You know, it's so wonderful that you bring it up because it's relevant to many people, you know. So, you know, gender is something that people are born with and it can change. You know, our sense of ourself can change. Our gender can change. It's not fixed. And so, and then we're in a society where there's not a whole lot of allowance for that yet. You know, that sort of um, fringe, in terms of where people are at with their own understanding. So, a person who's navigating transgender issues is going to be carrying what the society hasn't done themselves. Okay, a lot is going to be on the individual person. And so, I would, I can. I just feel an enormous amount of empathy about how excruciating that position must feel like and how alone it must feel. But I think with a lot of these things, like, I'm a nun, all right? And I've come out of something that was um, very challenging. And, you know there are a few people who understood what I was doing and why I was doing it and there were a lot of people who didn't and had really harsh things to say against me okay in the end I needed to find allies who understood me and I needed to know what I was doing myself I needed to feel comfortable in my own skin okay what makes it possible for you to feel comfortable in your own skin is really important to explore because transitioning genders is a huge change for yourself and for the people around you and also, you know, the society is not great with stuff like that, you know? And and so, you know, what would help you feel really comfortable that you know who you are, you know what you're doing, and you feel that's right. Okay? Because there may be people who can be allies for you and support you and embrace that, and there may be people who for whom that's going to be challenging. So what's important is, rather than ask the world to change, is to first feel a place in yourself where you feel some level of okayness with it. And what's going to help you feel that? Oh, it's so hard. It's just
5: like coming to terms with society and like their gender roles and expectations of females and males and like males are supposed to live one way and females are supposed to like the other way and just like and going through that in high school it's just such a I mean high school is confusing enough already and Plus, with, like, sexual orientation and gender identity added on top of it. I'm just, and I'm bipolar, so it's just, like, a big confusing mess of hormones happening everywhere. So I'm just having, like, getting grounded. I know I have allies like this one here, everyone here, my parents. And it's just really hard. I don't know. (laughs) I'm such a confused mess.
0: Well, I'm not experiencing you as such a confused mess. I'm experiencing you being actually quite grounded and quite clear and talking about a topic which is phenomenally complicated. And, and what, I, what I imagine would be helpful is to be around other people who are in a similar position. Now, there's one Dhamma teacher who I know of who's transgender. She trans from being male to female. And she is fantastic okay because she's very settled in her own skin all right her name is Catriona Reed and she talks a lot about you know navigating the intertidal zone of uncertainty and her clarity is exquisite okay and I met her in 2000 the first time and I was like I didn't know I didn't feel comfortable I didn't feel comfortable. She was fine, but I didn't feel comfortable. So I was having to navigate my own, like, what, who, you know, where, how do, you know, all of my own stuff, because I hadn't hadn't opened up any of that territory. So it was all brand new for me. And then I saw her again this summer, and I had a lovely connection with her. Wonderful, really heartfelt, very open. And she's very wise. And so this is a territory that she's navigated. So I would contact her, and I would go to her website, And I would see about other people who have done this, who maybe are a little bit more settled in the process, who you can reach out to. Because it's a big journey. It's a very big journey. And, you know, it would be a big journey for anybody at any age and in high school. Wow. You know? Wow. It's a really big journey. So hats off to the courage of knowing this is what you want to do and and feeling safe enough to open up and talk about it and to just begin to find a way to let your own process unfold in a way that's supported by others who want to support you, you know? It's like, yeah, absolutely. There was a woman, actually, I thought she was a woman, but she dressed like a man, and she came to the monastery, and the person who brought her there, she was, I think, 16, so she was young. So I had her gender identified as a female body. First thing she says to Tanya was, I'm half-half. And Tanya says, that's right, and don't let anybody tell you otherwise. You know? We had a transgender person on our retreat and I noticed and we had a conversation beforehand about how can we accommodate her in a way that she would feel most comfortable what was suitable and you know it's important because we're moving out of a binary world where there's just this and that and you know there are other there are other expressions you know I was at a Dhamma teacher's meeting and there were a couple of people that didn't identify with either being male or female you know so we're no longer in a binary world. And that's that's reality. And so we need to open our consciousness up to what that means for people and how do we embrace and support and encourage people to be where they're at in a way that's loving and kind and wise. katriana Reed is the person that I have the most confidence in her own groundedness with all of this she's a Dhamma teacher she was a Dhamma teacher before she changed she transitioned and uh, she's very wise but I am sure there will be other people as well who both have an affinity or an understanding or just enormous empathy and those are the people to hang out with to find out where they are and to reach out to them and especially when things get you know out of your depth just to say listen can I talk or can you just be around me for a while or something? Can we go for a walk? You know, whatever it is that you need to do. Because sometimes it's just too much.
5: That's what we're trying to do. Us too. We're um, officers at our schools, gay, straight, trans, So we're trying to be there for people that need us. <laughs> That's what I want to do. And is
4: show us want well, the thing is, a lot of people you just see walking down the street, you don't know what they could be going through. You don't know mm-hmm. who they want to talk to. You don't want to reach out to. Mm-hmm. And you're never going to reach out to someone unless you make yourself available. So I feel like in high school, it's important to have you know, posters and flags and be in a parade that says, we're here. We want to talk to you. We want to walk with We want to go you. And education is really important. It's not just about you know, what president did this, or what date, or, you know, your English essay. It's about being educated about what's happening in in society now. Mm -hmm. Educated
5: about how you can be there for your peers, and how you can prevent them from feeling alone in high school, because high school is just so hard.
2: I think that the beauty of it is, if you look at it this way, you all are like pioneers, you know? And in, in some sense, as hard as it is, you're setting the ground for future generations, you know, um, to learn about it, you know, and to talk about it. Because I, mean, I think about all the people who've come before who never had a voice, couldn't, even, couldn't come to a group and say, and talk about it more, you know? Um, and I can just imagine how hard that was, you know? to go through life like that, um, and maybe be somebody
0: that you know, you're not. You know. anyway, I think it's wonderful. It is wonderful. But also it's really helpful to kind of get a sense of like, you know, what helps support you? And to let that be known. You know, just put it out there. You know, I need telephone calls. Or I need a ham sandwich. Or I need somebody to go for a walk with me, you know? and so you've got you know you've got your hand sandwich people and your telephone people and your walk people and so when things feel like wow it just feels too much you know where you can reach out because one of the things that happens when we feel overwhelmed is we forget what we know that helps we forget it you know so we have to have a kind of like I don't know post-its or reminders or a toolbox or a a recipe book you know when I feel like this then I call the ham person because <laughs> <laughs> we we don't remember we don't remember how to take care of
3: ourselves I think sometimes the tendency is just at least myself is just to suck down mm-hmm. and where I become very limited
5: sometimes Sometimes if I reach out, it works, and sometimes that's not what I need to do. I need to go inside and feel it and let it pass, or go through whatever it's going through instead of pushing it away or or distracting myself. It's hard to know what you need, though, when you feel that desperation or, you know, the end of your rope or whatever, when you're in
3: it. When you're in it, things aren't clear. They just aren't clear. For me anyway.
0: No, it's not clear.
3: It's just, and and because it's not clear, it's then I don't want. I feel like I'm not uh, suitable for public consumption. So therefore, I, you know, at times.
0: Well, that's a whole other layer of fear of being yes. able to be vulnerable with others. And wow, what a learning that is, you know to be able to be just open and raw, and just exactly the way you are, and to do that with other people.
3: And I think you summed that up earlier when you say when when there are places you can go and be yourself, I think that multiplies because it's a message that says everybody gets to be themselves, no matter who they are. Mm-hmm. You know, within social, not social, within the confines of where you are. Right,
0: right.
3: And so I think, you know, like you said, pioneers, leaders, because if you're at ease with yourself, chances are the people around you are going to be at ease.
0: But there's also a thing of safety in numbers. And I really didn't know anything about that until I was a nun, and I saw some of the things that were happening in the monastery. And there was, one, there was one particular meeting that you know, the monks had, had, had kind of set the stage. And there said that only four nuns were allowed to go. And there were somewhere between 10 and 15 monks that were showing up. And one nun who was going to this meeting, she cried every single time she went to this meeting. And I argued for a fifth nun and prevailed. So we had five nuns. All right? When there were five, she stopped crying. Because there was safety in numbers. yeah. And so, you know, when you're in a situation where you're a minority person in a larger group, you need to have others with you because the kind of thing of what's needed, which is to... We were having to too many things sometimes one person would be on the hot seat and the other sisters would would be the facilitator the mediator the empathizer the and you couldn't do all of those things yourself in order to keep the conversation open alive and engaged so you needed you needed allies to do that with you and sometimes it was the people who were in the same situation you know so I'm just thinking of the East Bay Meditation Group in uh, Oakland California And they have a uh, phenomenally progressive diversity policy. They would like to see that 50% of their attendance to any of the events that they have are from the lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender Mm -hmm. community and people of color. And they preference their enrollment and give them a month's notice in advance before they, they allow... I mean, they've got all kinds of things that they do to make it... Absolutely, extra supportive for them to come and you know for the the color thing they will not allow a single white teacher to teach so when I go I have to pair up with somebody who's a person of color so that there's not the presentation of that the white people are teaching the group brilliant yeah it's great I
3: mean...
0: brilliant and got
3: it does put them at ease, I and mean, they did yeah. some scientific tests where they, um, where the amount of empathy you could feel was most with your own race, your own gender, and all that. So having that is a is a critical factor in making somebody feel at ease, because mm-hmm. just you know they took a whole bunch of people, and the ones that they could identify most with. The most significant event was let's say if you were black, then you know, it was another black female. And I thought, well, it does make sense and I think we're wired kinda like for safety to identify that way. Right. But I think that's something you gotta overcome because you're in a body and it may change cholesterol, you
0: know. Yeah, well all kinds of stuff changes, you know. Yeah and you know people have some ideas about what's fixed and it ain't fixed you know it just ain't fixed i
3: you know. think there's a lot less fixed than we
0: think yeah yeah i mean my friends martha and susan they you know there had been an interest for me to go to the michigan women's music festival a number of years ago and martha is she's brilliant she teaches pre law at a university in michigan and She was saying that for 8 years or 10 years or 12 years, they've been having this conversation about what constitutes being a woman. So the women's music festival is for women. And then they had to figure out, well, who is a woman? Who gets to come? And for 12 years, they have been asking and debating this question. And for 12 years, they have never been able to come to a conclusion about what constitutes being a woman.
3: Moving target.
0: Well, you know how do you well how do you decide, and who gets to decide, and what happens if other people don't feel that way, you know? Or what if? Yeah, you know, people are in different positions. So Tanya, who's brilliant, said, "You are what you think you are." <laughs> <laughs> and that's
3: probably pretty close to the
0: truth. And I like that. I think that's right. You are what you think you are. Good. Well, maybe we can close with a little bit of meta.